Let's get this started. Uh, could you start with please pronouncing your names correctly for me? Mine is Maria Makarova. Okay. Where are you from? Russia. That's a really large country. Could you be more That's specific? That's a very large country indeed. I've lived most of my life in Moscow, but I was born in a smaller town, like 200 kilometers away. And now I'm living in Italy. And? Uh, my name is Frederick Kranberg. Uh, I'm originally from Estonia, although I moved away from here when I was, I think, nine years old. And then I lived uh, nine years in Brussels. And for the past five years, I want to say, uh, I've been living in The Hague in the Netherlands. All right. So the topic of the sort of arts academia slash the idea of like what should be part of the current art curriculum is something that you all desired to discuss. <laughs> I believe that we could probably start with the, the easier part, which is what, what do you all believe is currently wrong with the system? Oh, there are so many things. <laughs> go ahead and just start. You can go in alphabetical or order of importance. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Okay, let's go through your notes, maybe. <laughs> Start off. Wow, well, you brought Something. notes. I love it. Okay, great. <laughs> it seems to me that art academies are just kind of outdated in their positioning. All right, wait, I'm going to pause you for a second. The term art academy, could we define that before we continue? Because uh, in the United States, we don't really have art yeah, academies. Yeah, okay, so I mean like higher education in the art sector. Okay, uh, so a college. Yeah, like a college or, an or university even. or okay. academy. It's a little bit, uh, I don't know, in, in some countries in Europe, art academies are like uh, academies and others, they're universities. So like the terminology is a bit all over the place. But Okay, so when, when you say education. art academy, you mean art school, art university, art college, any of those terms all mean the same thing. Basically, just higher education. Yeah. Okay, because I'll say probably say art school. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Yeah, where do you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you one that I've noticed, which is the mentor-apprentice relationship that seems to be still very prominent. Now, I want to say I like it, but I think that it needs to evolve. Like I think it's still very stuck in old traditions. I mean, I think there is also a kind of. Um... Mm, that the identities of art school teachers, like they don't really think of themselves as teachers necessarily most of the time, but more as artists that come to, I don't know, give forward their knowledge. But since they are not, well, I don't want to say always, but often they're not uh, coming to the schools with a teaching practice in mind the methodologies that they use to put forward their knowledge can be quite uh, murky or basically just not necessarily uh, thought through can be at times quite unprofessional or quite hurtful for students or quite uh, kind of random or like it, it seems to me that the quality of education in art academies is very often a question of luck of like does a good artist also happen to have good communication skills most of the time it seems to be not the case agreed um, 
And I mean, it varies a lot country per country, of course. And I know that in the um, higher education in, in art uh, sector in the Netherlands, like it's become a very prominent discourse of training art teachers and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's a very kind of slow grind. Uh, well, the problem I see from what you just brought up, which is there, there are sort of two issues here because a lot of places you're talking about, especially like I know like Germany and a lot of the places around Netherlands kind of region, they like to hire famous names yes. as their professors. Yes. Now those famous artists are not trained as teachers but they're now put no. in because they elevate the status of the school because they're a famous name. Yeah, and like I've had, uh, like there in my personal experience, I haven't found the correlation between being a good artist and being a good teacher. Like I've had teachers that are incredibly successful and also very good teachers. That's a very rare mix. At the same time, I've had teachers with basically dormant practices for the past two decades, but they're still very good teachers uh, because they keep up with the art form in a different kind of way. They are following closely what students are doing or they are uh, taking part in sector in another way that is not necessarily them making. That's much more common. Yeah, that's much more common. I know a lot of artists that are, or a lot of teachers, I guess, that are very good teachers and quite honestly, not very good artists. And and that's another side to this. So like on the one side, there are yeah. these schools that are like hiring these famous artists to in order to elevate the status of their school. But on the other side of it, a lot, like when I went to art school, so I went to get my master's and, and that's enough to be cred credential, cred Cred credibility. Well, it makes it so I can teach at the university level. So like, it gives me the credentials to teach. Yeah. But not a single class in my master's program was about how to teach. Yeah, it was all about how to be an artist. I mean, I think with teachers, there's also uh, one of my sort of pet peeves in art education. I guess is that uh, the stereotype of like the artists that teach are basically those that failed in their professions and therefore took up teaching as a way to uh, kind of still stay somehow connected to the medium but not necessarily produce themselves and I find this to be a very like dismissive uh, logic of what it means to be a teacher like I think teaching can be a practice as much as being an artist can be a practice Agreed. And uh, I think if we were to like design a, an academy just from thin air, that attention towards teaching as something that is an actual craft or an actual skill or practice would be one of the things that I would be very like adamant about, I guess. Well, like when I think back through my youth and my career i studied all kinds of different things i studied psychology in, at university i studied native american studies don't ask it was i, I was just smoking a lot of pot back then <laughs> and i mean all kinds of different stuff that i've studied throughout my life but like the one thing i always knew was that i was going to be a teacher 
and it, it didn't matter really what subject it, that I was going to teach. It just ended up being art because that's the major I ended up going into. So like I knew I was going to be a teacher first and then found my subject. Whereas there are a lot of, like you say, like artists who then fall back on being a teacher as, as a backup plan when something else fails. And sadly, it's kind of true in a lot of cases, but I kind of wish you're right. Like, I wish that wasn't the norm. Although it's true, but it's also, uh, in a lot of cases, it's also like artists that start to teach and kind of fall back on it. But at the same time, sometimes it's not so easy to tell, like, did they fall back on it? because they needed the job or did they fall back on it because they actually discovered they're really good teachers and then seemingly we still kind of identify them as like the artists that couldn't make art and therefore teach but maybe they also found like a new form to express themselves within. I kind of feel the term fall back on it says everything here it's very derogatory but intentional Mm. Yeah, if you fall back on something, it kind of means that it's not intentional. Like, I, yeah. I don't know, for me specifically, if you're, if you're ending up teaching, well, you wanted to do something else, it says a good deal about how good of a teacher you will be. If that's your only option, basically, of sustaining your career. Well, I'll give you this. Okay, so from my personal experiences, so seeing other artists who are professors in the academic industry, the young ones all try to balance both. They're trying to have a great artistic career and be great teachers, and oftentimes they fail at one or the other. And they end up later in life realizing, oh, that's what I meant was meant to do. Hmm. Like, I, I mean, I know of a number of people, that, I'm not going to name any names, but people that I've taught with, the, the young ones, they, they went into teaching thinking it was like a great secure way to have a standard income and all this kind of stuff so that they could then have the freedom to make their art. And then they realized they hated the academic structure. Hmm. And so they left. So that, you know, some, sometimes it goes like that. Whereas I know other people who had incredible careers and then they chose to go into teaching and they gave up their careers intentionally because they love teaching so much, but it only came in time. So I think that that thing sort of comes later. Uh, Like, you know, I'm talking like when they're 40 and older, like after they've been in the academic world for a number, a decade or more, where they come to that realization of like, I'm a career teacher, not an artist first anymore. And then they sort of double down on it and really get into it. So I th- like my personal uh, observation at this point would be if you want the people who are really truly passionate teachers, who are good quality teachers, you probably want to go with, I'll go with like mid-career teachers. So you're like 40 to 45-year-olds, something in that range. Because if they're still teaching at that point, then they probably really love it and have gotten into it. But a lot of times the schools are often looking for the young, hot star the with the new, fresh ideas. And they're probably not as good teachers because they're still trying to balance in that artistic career simultaneously. That makes a lot of sense. I was listening to, I can't remember the names now, but it was, a, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the psychology podcast. 
And is that what it's called? The psychology yeah. podcast? No, yeah. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, well, it doesn't matter, but uh, or kind of does, but <laughs> you know, I, I listen to all of the podcasts. <laughs> um, but there, there was an episode where uh, someone was describing how also as you are somewhere in kind of midway through your life, you like in the beginning, you're very good at like this kind of uh, innovation, high pressure situations, coming up with new ideas, uh, managing, you know, very stressful groups or whatever. And from a certain point, you kind of cannot develop from there on. And you actually should switch more into a teaching role and that doesn't mean to to be a teacher per se but to kind of embody that's in whatever profession or role you are taking um i agree i've been so, feeling it in myself like yeah. there was a time when i loved being the new guy like having all the fresh ideas and all this and like at this point i would personally really just love to find a good school that has a stable structure and just just be part of it like, yeah you know you there's a certain amount of comfort in that versus the uh, like potentials that could potentially go magnificently, but could potentially go horribly. Yeah, that's true. But something else came up that popped in my head, which is my pet peeve about academia as a whole. Okay, Teachers go into the teaching profession because we love teaching, which means we like being in the classroom. We like teaching the students. Unfortunately, current academic structure is the actual time, energy, and whatever that we put into the classroom itself is less than half of our job because we have to go to bullshit meetings, write papers, do like all kinds of ridiculous other things that have nothing to do with teaching because that's the way the industry has become. Uh, so I have a, a, a proposal. So, because like I know a guy, not again. I'm not going to mention his name because he might be offended by this. But like, I know this one teacher, well, quote unquote teacher, but he hates teaching. Like he hates being in the classroom, but he loves all the other stuff. So he loves the administrative work. He loves meetings. He loves writing papers. So I propose that there should there should be some sort of differentiation. Like there are teacher teachers, and then there's like administrative teachers. So like make an administrative teacher, they have 75% admin, 25% teaching time. Teacher teachers get 75% teaching time with 25% admin. So it all balances out. Everybody does what they love more than what they don't love. And the students get the results they need because they get the exposure to the teachers who are actually enjoying and, and love the act of teaching more than the teachers who don't love teaching they see them less. I think that's a great idea because I'm tired of all that administrative bullshit. I mean, I think the administration in school should be there to support the teachers and to support students in the classrooms, right? I mean... Oh, you are so naive. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, that's also kind of the point. <laughs> I mean, I mean, okay, I am working as a, as a policy advisor to a directorate at an art academy in the Netherlands. And... Uh, I am kind of in a double role where on the one hand I am working with students, I am uh, like doing kind of more informal projects within the school with students 
Um, and then I'm, I'm advising on like policy and I am programming and I'm kind of using that connection with the students to give advice on policy and to program courses and like which kind of teachers to hire and like this kind of thing. So, I mean, I can also imagine why having like a teaching part in your work would support like the more administrative side, let's say. I don't necessarily know. I mean, I guess understanding the behind the scenes of like the administrative part gives some context to why education is so difficult and messed up. But at the same time, yeah, I, I also agree that teachers shouldn't really be too bothered by that. And also, I don't know that they are everywhere. Oh, it's uh, true. This may just be... Well, I mean, everywhere I've taught has been, I'll go under the American model. We'll just go with that. Yeah. Because part of it was in the United Arab Emirates, but yeah. it was under the American model. Because like, what kind of administrative work would you do? Oh my God, the kind of administrative work I had to do. I had to be on the health and safety committee. I was the chair of the health and safety committee. And so I had to go around to every single studio and classroom and nitpick every single design of every room in relation to airflow, pathways, okay. wheelchair okay. accessibility, okay. Uh, toxicity of, of materials, of which I don't give a fuck. We have a department for that that just does. No, no. That. That's the teacher's responsibility. And was that, no, there, there is a department at that university that is in charge of that, but they need advice from the teachers as far as what is necessary versus what's unnecessary. You know, like, so oh, like while the, while the, while the health and safety actual office could say, you can't use this chemical. The teacher would say that chemical is necessary for this art form. Hmm. And so that debate then has to happen. And it was my role to be the mediator between those, which is none of my fucking business. That's just one of like nine committees I've been on much like that. But we've been ranting on. Yeah. If you could build an art school, what, what's the first issue that exists currently that you would try to do differently? Mm, I'd say something that comes up a lot in our conversations also in the currently right now within the project something that I keep noticing also being more from the art manager kind of job and being somewhere there on the background um, not really talking to artists or being on the conceptual side of it is that I hate the gap between the system of arts and the artists themselves it feels like we don't really understand each other. We still need to coexist. And if I had to do something about it, I would put them together in the learning process. Because I am now finishing my master's in the art management sector. I know everything about the museum. I know like the how to do the budget, how to talk to some policymakers. I don't know shit, I'm sorry. Uh, about how to work in an art gallery and how to deal with contemporary artists, how to talk to them. And this has turned out to be very, very challenging. Um, and I think it's not only the gap from the side of 
the art managers not understanding, not only the art managers, the system of arts, not understanding the people in the very middle of the system, but also from the point of view of the artist that they don't really understand how the system around them functions. And I think it came up a lot during the project. And if I could, I would fix that. Just for a little bit of clarification, when you, yeah. you're you using the vague term system, mm-hmm. give me some more detailed ideas or some specific examples of this system that you're talking about. In general, when we're talking about the art system, well, when we're using it as a term in academia, in the research, in the art sector, um, it is describing all the different connections that need to happen, all the different processes that need to happen between very different actors for some kind of cultural product to be made. So there's obviously an artist, but then there is a gallerist, there is a curator, there is a manager, um, there is an editor. All of these different people somehow need to coexist. And for me, it is still a mystery how they do because for now I don't understand how they talk to each other. Just a little step back, actually. Could you all mm-hmm. tell me what your ages are? <laughs> Just for the listeners, because they can't see you. I can sure. see you, and I've known you now for a week. So, you know. but approximately, Sorry, it's inappropriate to ask a woman her age, I know. but That's for, completely okay. For the context of understanding all of this, like per, uh, perspectives. Uh, 23, almost 24. And how old are you? I am 24. Okay. Yeah, it just gives a little bit of perspective. I'm 48, almost <laughs> 49. No, it's it's just that we get this question a lot, I guess, both of us, or yeah. at least I do. Or we, I had a new director <laughs> finally come at the Art Academy, and we were doing contract negotiation, and then finally he asked, like, so how old are you? And I'm like, 24. He just laughs, you know? <laughs> it is a little hard. I'll, I'll admit, like, over the course of this past week, I've been at the Destructura <laughs> Forum, and I and I felt old, um, quite honestly. <laughs> and, 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 and But on the other hand, at a certain point, I've also been sitting here a lot just like looking. I apologize but to both you and all the people who coordinate this <laughs> thing for what I'm about to say. But a lot of what I heard talked about, I was like, oh, you're just young. <laughs> you're just young and naive. That will be beaten out of you if you continue in this industry, because like there was a lot of great romantic, big ideas, all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, I remember being that age and having the (laughs) same kinds of ideas until I was suddenly like, yeah, no, you can't change those things. (laughs) Like There are just some things you can't change, at least not within a lifetime. Like they will take generate. Some of these things will take generations to change, but. I just wanted to point out, like, age is also sort of a factor in what's being talked about as well. <laughs> of course. So anyways, the art system. Yeah. I think I basically... Okay, so you so there. you want more yeah. knowledge about how the system works to be integrated into the educational process. I'm also, like, from a kind of the more art academy side then. <laughs> uh 
it is a very individualist education most of the time. So you really, you know, students get taught like how to write an artistic statement or maybe they even get taught how to write a grant or how to, uh, you know. <laughs> not my generation, we weren't. But yeah, go on. Well, I kind of was a little bit, not like terribly well, but, <laughs> you know, it was somehow covered. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems to uh, be that the kind of responsibility to figure out the sector is uh, educated only by like individualistic skills that you can take or have instead of actually opening up a conversation about how does the sector actually function? What are the stakeholders? What do galleries do? What do museums do? Who can offer what to artists? How can... Uh, like what are the organizations that uh, can support artists or unions or rep, you know whatever like that's such a European idea a union for artists it's, well, so I mean, it's a fairly common uh, thing that exists I think in most European countries but I don't know any young artists that are part of a union well know? it's because they have dues and they have like <laughs> criteria that you have to have met in order to be able to be eligible for it which yeah. young people don't have either of those things so yeah I know I mean I agree with everything that both of you are saying the 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 because like the one thing that I like looking back in hindsight and the wisdom of age kind of bullshit that I wish somebody had told me early on that the romantic idea of the solo artist is bullshit. Yeah, it, it, I think it, it takes a community to accomplish yeah. anything. I mean, we also had like uh, presentations today of. Uh, like different kind of groups from different disciplines coming together. So you had like designers, uh, visual artists, filmmakers, but also curators, art managers, like philosophers. Well, I don't know how appropriate it is to call like a 26 year old a philosopher, even though they have a degree, <laughs> but you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, they, d they earned the title. We'll give it to them. <laughs> I guess it's like calling a 26 year old art graduate and artist so i think it's fair actually uh but anyway like i think the future of contemporary art seems to be moving towards a cross-disciplinary collaborative uh model and art edu art schools most of the time are either working against that model or really struggling how to make sense of it. <laughs> well, see, my position on that, and this is why, quite honestly, you're sort of getting to the point of like why I made this podcast in the first place, which is that I'm a professor. Now, I'm teaching students now, contemporary students, what I learned 30 years ago, okay? Yeah. Now, but I learned from teachers who had been teaching for 30 years so I was being taught 60-year-old information and techniques. And now I'm passing those on Well, prior to building this podcast and learning the reality of the situation now. Like I was passing on very outdated techniques, models, uh, career directions, and things like this. Because things have changed rather dramatically. And unfortunately, a lot of academics don't keep up with how the industry is actually working. And so that's why I created this podcast because like, if I want to be a good teacher, I need to know what's going on. Otherwise I'm just propagating old ideas that are out of date and don't work anymore. So 
that's also a bit of a difficulty where I believe that the teachers who are continuing to teach need to be, I'm not going to say like mandated to, but like maybe just kept informed of like the newest things that are going on and how things work and all this, because too many of them are basically out of touch up in their ivory tower and they don't really know what's going on, but they just still teach. How do you keep a balance then between a good teacher who is sure that they want to get teaching as their career and a teacher who is up to date with everything? Because we discussed this question of age of teachers. Well, I'm doing it. <laughs> so let me, how do you do it? Maybe also a question of like, how do we think about teaching in general or like the role of the teacher? Like, is it someone that passes down knowledge or is it someone that organizes an an environment where new knowledge can be created uh well is is a teacher's job passing down concepts and techniques or career like craftsmanship or the foundation of a career and i think that's a, a, a difficult difficult balance because yeah Current art school structures are very much about techniques and concepts, basically, because it's basically like do learn a tool or a technique and then get critiqued on it and then do it better. Like that's pretty much the, the way schooling works. But like what you've been bringing up, Maria, is I am it is Maria. Okay, <laughs> suddenly like did I say your name wrong? Okay, great, Maria. <laughs> what you're bringing up is that the industry is not taught so like these people these kids are walking out of art school with great skills great ideas but no idea what to do with it to have a career in it and once i even no idea what to do with that that is obvious of course but also no idea on how to communicate with other elements of this system how much effort it takes to organize all the other elements of this system that it is not a one-person job and that a lot of systems should come into place for something to happen. And this is a huge gap on both sides. I know, I didn't even realize, well, okay, maybe I did realize it, but like I didn't verbalize it until like maybe about two years ago, some, pod, some person on the podcast made me understand that like an artist makes art. Okay, so that, and then in their studio, they can be solo, they can work as a collaboration, they can do however, whatever, but they finish that. And then once that's done, that's literally like 10% of the process of an art piece, because then it has to catch the eye of a collector or catch the eye of a curator, catch the eye of a, a gallerist, and then it needs to be presented. So then there's, there's, again, there might be a curator then involved, and then maybe a collector will be involved. And then, and then somehow that needs to be then associated to an art fair or a movement, or then needs to reach to a bigger institution, or maybe they then have to use some of those connections to get to a grant or to an artist residency. It takes so many different variables to get a piece of art from your studio in front of the eyes of the public that is not taught in art school. In art school, we're taught, make beautiful work, put it on the walls. <laughs> and that's it. And, and really somehow magically the, gets there. The, the kind of beauty of having like these artists, designers, curators, 
programmers like studying together that they are all discovering simultaneously the different uh, like roles that are possible within the sector. Okay, well, here, um, then I'll, I'll postulate this for you. So your art academy that you're wanting to create, would this art academy have separation between a painting school versus a sculpture school versus a, let's say, video school or film school? Or would you just have an art academy that, that everybody learns everything? I don't think it's so much that everybody learns everything, but it's more that everybody lo learns uh, a part of the sector or like a specific medium or a specific skill, like maybe a curator or a photographer or whatever, but they, they are doing it together instead of being separated either in different kind of departments that don't communicate with each other or worst case, even different schools that communicate with each other even less. And that just sort of creates these silos of knowledge that are kind of, well, almost a prerequisite to navigate the sector. And I feel like, you know, having this fragmentation is somewhere that, uh, yeah, just this dynamic is something that I feel is a place where higher education in the arts is really like not taking the responsibility that it has towards young artists or curators or basically cultural practitioners in general that want to uh, enter the sector. Well, that siloing, I think, actually feeds directly into your issue of the system because when there's this siloing, so like when curators are taught in the curatorial classes and you know, working studio artists are taught in painting classes or, or um, sculpture classes or printmaking classes, they don't talk to each other, which is the, the breakdown of that system that you keep talking about. It's not always about these technical things also, not about understanding how to make a curatorial text for your exhibition, because I know a lot of artists are also doing that for themselves. Um, we're horrible at it. We hate doing it. <laughs> it's also for this fact of somehow demolishing the myth around the art practitioner and demolishing this immense obligation, I feel, that is now on them to kind of be a machine that is working 24-7 and 360 degrees. I don't know if you actually agree with that, but a lot of my friends that I see trying to pursue an artistic career, they kind of feel like they need to do it all on their own. I blame that on Instagram. <laughs> Why? Because Instagram, to be a successful Instagram artist or like just a successful artist on Instagram, you have to keep up with the algorithm and the algorithm wants you to post something every day or every two days, something new and something interesting, something that gets likes and follows and whatever. And like me, like I, my example is this, my current process of my work, when I make an, a piece of art, it takes me on average three to four months to finish one piece. Well. Now that is impossible to, for me to Instagram because literally every day would just be almost the same thing of me, like gluing down a layer of tissue paper. There you go. Next day, glue down another layer of tissue paper. 
you know, for three months. So the but Instagram wants you to be constantly making something new, being completing something, making some beautiful, pretty video that everybody loves. If Instagram, if, if the arts and Instagram didn't become so synonymous with each other, then and and we were free of that sort of need to or the desire to be connected to the art world through Instagram, I think that speed issue would change dramatically. But artists and Instagram are also like the perfect match in a way, you know, because very much artists so. Artists are so much about, uh, you know what is your practice about or like what do you want to express and what do you want to contribute or uh yeah like what is your identity etc and it's I mean, is it really though because like when i look at instagram and i see the quote-unquote artists feeds of stuff it's often some let's say semi-attractive woman painting possibly scantily clad or something along that line it's very rarely a high quality intellectual progressive forward-thinking work of art it's more of a a beautiful person in a beautiful location painting something meh, maybe slightly above average <laughs> i was actually not yeah, bringing up the topic of speed but more of the topic of skills and this ma mismatch between what skills you need to have to be a professional artist and to sustain yourself with that, and what skills you are taught, and how much human ability you actually have to do that load of stuff. Okay, great. What are the skills that you believe that we need that we don't currently get? Well, also from the talks with the artists inside the project right now, we see that they really struggle with funding. Yes, you saying that they're struggling also with curatorial text, which is... Um, oh, no, that's not a them. That's all of us. I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are a number of artists that are very good writers, but like, if you're not a good writer, like my example that I've, told, I've said on the podcast numerous times is when I was in undergraduate school, they, they said, write a one-page thing about your, your, your artwork. So I wrote in really big font to fill up one page. If I wanted to write about my art, I would have been a writer. <laughs> that is nice. And I did not get that grant, needless <laughs> to say, but it felt good to have expressed it. <laughs> exactly. And well, as a, as somebody who is doing fundraising for somewhat artistic initiative, for over a year Somewhat. right now. Somewhat. <laughs> we talk about the arts every now and again. Well, we're not artistic. We're not producing I think any we should talk about art. why you called it someone. <laughs> because I think there's much more to it. As okay. Most of the time we're busy with bureaucracy. <laughs> most, m most of the time we're busy with, I don't know, supporting advocacy. Yeah. I don't know. For, for me, it is more of a attempt into advocacy than it is an attempt into art i mean it's trying Maybe. to kind of bring civic engagement into the cultural sector exactly and it's difficult to sometimes navigate which of the two are the priority <laughs> and how to kind of uh integrate <laughs> I don't really know if we can like, differentiate between those that much because also what we're seeing right now is that a lot of the artists that are part of the project are 
also activists they bring out different topics they're not there to make something beautiful they're there to make a statement and to make some change happen which is a lot about advocating for a better world but like yesterday we were uh discussing a bit like the role and responsibility <laughs> of art academies and or well actually it's not even art academies it's more like <laughs> what's so funny <laughs> uh the term role of an artist in an arts academy like i mean it, it, there there are as many answers to that as <laughs> there are grains of sand um, you know i mean like yeah no that's fair let's um, say we're talking a bit more of a what would be the role and responsibility of an art academy that we would envision if we were to create one well i've often yeah. wanted to do a, a like an artist residency like i would hmm. love to build like go out into the middle of nowhere so find some beautiful place and build a, an artist residency out there that would be an amazing thing for me because you can play the role of, of like a mentorship and and helping out people and stuff like this without having to do the sort of bureaucratic stuff that academia has to do but i mean education can take many forms so i mean i think a residency can be equally as transformative to someone than a called degree, adult education know? yeah <laughs> older people's education but yeah i mean i love the idea of, of building an artist residency kind of program with and and it could include some sort of you know workshops or engagement or social engagement or like just like connecting with curators and whatever like there's so many ways you could do it they could be really compelling without the because like one of the other things that like you haven't even gotten touched on about like an art academy i don't know how it works in europe but like in america if you want to be an art school you actually have to have quote-unquote accreditation yeah it works the same kind of way you which, have a... yeah which means you have to like basically f you have to fit into this accrediting bodies um construct of the correct school so like if you want to do that you have to fit the existing mold that the accrediting body has agreed on so you can't really break the mold too far it feels like that's the case with almost any form of expression in any human activity no also just with organizing smaller projects in the cultural sector we do have to follow standards when you're trying to fund your art project or sustain it for some organization you need to follow their standards and i will keep but probably coming back to this question of this m miscommunication between artists and the cultural system apart from the artist but i feel like this this is a necessary evil f for now okay a non-necessary evil but this is something that we need to acknowledge it exists there is no sustainable way to get out of it right now give me a, a, a concrete example of one of these miscommunications you're trying to bring up okay because I could think of like dozens of them. So <laughs> just give me one and we'll riff off of that. Um, even now, for example, during the project, we uh, we kept kind of mixing this frameworks that are more um, artistic, that are giving more freedom with frameworks that are more related to policy and how we deal with politicians. How do we talk to them? 
uh, frameworks that are more how do we deal with our funders and how do we make a project appropriate for them. And sometimes it seems like the participants, the artists don't really understand what is the backbone of the project that is making everything that is happening here happen. And it brings up a lot of questions, which we of course have answers to most of the time, but it still needs to be explained. And I don't really feel like it is always necessary to explain. It shouldn't be necessary to explain some simple things like, yes, you know, funding works like this. There are these obvious pitfalls in it, which we need to deal with collectively and not because I also think that sometimes it becomes a point of conflict within the cultural system. And so it makes it difficult for us to help each other in some way. I mean, the gaps of knowledge between the different actors within the cultural sector. Exactly. And maybe even the cultural sector and like what I haven't got a very good way of referring to, but let's <laughs> say like the general public or the kind of mass audience I think a lot of the the root causes for some of these dynamics is also that the arts is, I mean, for example, during the pandemic, you know, like museums were the first to be closed as like the non-essential things. Or well, theater, really. Theater, live music. Theater, that kind of live stuff, music, yeah. all of that, basically. The arts and cultural sector, for sure. Yes. Um, and it's also something that is, I mean, I can understand where it comes from, obviously, because it's not a like a life and death kind of situation. So, uh, but at the same time, without arts and culture, society would be pretty depressive and boring and just kind of generally miserable. Some people would love it, actually, but yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the thing. There's no perfect answer for everybody. I think everybody. they would miss it more than uh, it's one of these things that you miss once you don't have it anymore. Well, see, like for me, I was raised. My parents are both very creative as well. My my father paints. My mother is an interior designer. So, like, I came up around a very creative household. But and we, like, I was raised with designed plateware. Like so, like our dishes were by Heller. You know, so like we had like famous designers who made dishware kind of thing. So like to me, the idea of like being creative is not rele relegated only to the white cube or the theater mm -hmm. or anything like that. I, th I find a beautifully designed plate as elegant and as beautiful as a painting in a museum if it's done well. I mean, that but that goes back to my snobbery of like criteria of what makes things though but done well so like what a lot of people outside of the arts world don't understand is how influential artists are in every aspect of their lives i mean we yeah. we design their cars we design their chairs yeah. we design their bedding we design everything we design their clothing you know so like people who do these creative things don't necessarily only end up being fine artists. They often end up being somehow influential in almost every aspect of our lives down to the design of our phones and our computers and everything that we do and wear and see and experience. So the idea of like a world without creativity, I think is almost impossible. Yeah. But a world without creativity that's capitalistic driven 
that's a different story. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. So what other topics do you have? I wanted to maybe get back a little bit to like the responsibility part or. Okay. Responsibility of whom on, on behalf of what? <laughs> well, actually, I've been kind of pondering this question of who should be the student in an art academy <laughs> in the sense of at least in the Netherlands uh, universities are quite often claiming to be kind of neutral so in a sense which I find uh, hard to believe uh, agreed but in a sense that they have a responsibility to offer a framework of education for students inside and to organize that but they don't take part in larger societal discourse to advocate for the arts or to advocate for whatever kind of uh sector they are educating within and in the same way that art academies have the responsibility towards students to provide them with skills and knowledge that they need to navigate the sector they I feel like art academies should also have some sort of responsibility to educate, again, I don't like this kind of words, but the general public to bring forward into public discourse, like what is happening within the cultural sector, what are the problems, what are the um, like, like, likes of funding, uh, how is it organized to, to kind of have, to basically create uh, more I guess, empathy towards artists uh, and towards this kind of immaterial uh, objects or visual pieces or whatever that we cannot quite, that we don't necessarily want to put a price on, but then at the same time still value a lot. Okay, just to be clear, so let me sort of paraphrase this just to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying that it is the responsibility of an art school and the student body of that school to educate the general public. I think the students come first always, but I do think that art schools should be like public institutions that are transparent, open, and communicate with a wide audience that is not only the internal student body. Okay, well, that brings up, this will tie back together actually to your funding part over here, Maria. So the 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 one issue that we haven't just differentiated between is, are we talking about private art schools or public art schools? I am imagining only public, like publicly funded institutions. So okay, because I went to two public schools and two private schools in my career. I went to four schools, but only graduated from three. I'm not going to talk about what happened to that first one, but <laughs> it involved restraining orders and all. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> okay, but I want to hear this story now. It, in a nutshell, this this Bible thumping young lady in North Carolina said that I I quote unquote um, verbally assaulted her when I said to her, and I quote. This is a crock of shit. <laughs> she felt verbally assaulted by that, so she called the police on me, and therefore I ended up having to be, leave the county. <laughs> the county? <laughs> I was kicked out of the county wow. and and asked not to return to the school. It was. I mean, don't get me wrong. At the same time, I also threw this 
raging party that lots of people got arrested for. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, that's why you got kicked out. All, of the all, company, all in the same. The all, well, that was all in the same week. So, like, I'm, I'm not sure which sort of led to it, but like, there was this really great party where lots of people got arrested, and this girl called the police on me in the same week. So, can't tell which one caused what, but in the end, I left that school. But, anyways. Sounds nice. Oh, I've had a very colorful life. <laughs> so, anyways, but the the point of like the, there is a huge differentiation because like a private art school has technically has no responsibility to do what you're talking about. So, a publicly funded art school, uh, to a certain extent, I'd agreed has the responsibility to go out into the world and help to engage the non-students and the non the sort of non <laughs> the non-initiated into the, into the understanding yeah of the i mean world. it sounds a little bit like it, it uh, sounds so pompous very <laughs> pretentious intellectuals coming to enlighten the poor proletariat you know but that is exactly how i meant it but yeah <laughs> i know i struggle with this dynamic as well <laughs> Well, it's hard because like my, my wife is an accountant, like, and she has no interest in art whatsoever. <laughs> and it's really hard sometimes because like I'm trying to be like, hey, I need time away to do this, and she's like, I have to work forty hours a week. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm gonna go off for a week and do this artistic endeavor. And she's just like, what's how much money are you making from this artistic? And I'm like, none. <laughs> but in the future, I'll make money from this. But I need this time. And like, so that that the understanding of the sort of the cultural differences that people who choose to go into this industry, we need very different lifestyles than everybody else and unfortunately there's this sort of stigma in the in the world the, of like artists as recluses and uh, you know the starving artist and the the stoners and the you know there's this horrible perception the one problem i have which again i'm going to go back i'm trying to include maria more in this by the way in case you haven't noticed but like i'm gonna go back to it is like part of it is because we as a as a culture like artists are really bad at the quote unquote like the business part of the arts industry. We can produce things, we can come up with great ideas, we can do all that sort of you know, technical stuff that's taught in art schools, but we're horrible at the business of it. And if we could figure out a balance on how to be more business minded, then that would elevate. Maybe I want to say that, like, to clear, like not overly business-minded because I know a number of art schools that are very commercially based and they end up making just commercially based artists. So I'm not meaning that. I'm meaning artists who understand how to make a business career out of being an artist. I still struggle with this notion of what artists should do and shouldn't do. Because at the same time, there is, I feel like there's too much on their shoulders at all given times. But at the same time, yeah, it seems like a little bit more free flow considering the general framework. The general framework is terrible, though. <laughs> um, because it's very restrictive to any possible opportunity of expressing yourself as a human being. I think... 
giving a little again I'm gonna come back to this giving a little bit more communication to the art system and to the young professionals in the art system is going to solve some of these problems and maybe if institutions especially educational institutions acknowledge this fact that there needs to be communication there needs to be dynamic from the start of their careers between people who are going to um, be artists people who are going to fundraise for artists people who are going to be working as gallerists if they started communicating in the very beginning it would be much easier for all of them for example my friend she works in the IT sector and she's a she has been studying for the role of a manager in the IT sector specifically and a lot of their course is communicating with what she calls IT guys because it's very difficult to communicate to them when you are a manager because those guys just do code. Why aren't we taught that as cultural managers, art managers? Why aren't artists dragged into communication uh, with us during their education and we are not dragged into communication with artists. This would solve so many problems from also from my personal professional struggles right now. Um, and then there's this whole idea of how do you actually come to a point of calling somebody an artist? Where is this actual, you know, point that you should cross to be like, okay, I'm an artist now. I have two working t- like things for how, how, when to call somebody an artist. Hmm. One, little flippant, but kind of true. You can't call yourself an artist, but somebody else can call you an artist. It's, it's kind of, you know, a little cliche and stuff, but it's kind of true. The other side of it is some people say you can call yourself an artist when you earn the majority of your living from your art. Okay, I understand where both are coming from. I have so many questions for both. Go ahead. Um, with the first one, if it's somebody that is supposed to call you an artist, who is that somebody? Yeah, it can't be like a loved one. Like if your mother calls you an artist, that doesn't count. <laughs> okay, so it should be somebody within the system then. Yes, I I refer to the the <laughs> I refer to those people <laughs> as them, and them. I put air quotes around that for the listeners. Them, they. Any sort of thing of like an innocuous, faceless, powerful person that you'll never know. Them, they, yeah. It's often curators, collectors, uh, people that work at institutions, things like this. Well, if we're talking about the system, we should still always acknowledge the dynamics within the system. And I am not sure all artists would accept some well anything from some of the people within the system because this is exactly what they're trying to fight you know you cannot be like okay this person that i kind of hate is calling me an artist now so then i can feel good about my career i kind of struggle with this notion of somebody's calling you an artist um i don't understand why who is that somebody what if you hate that somebody what if you think that that somebody is the root cause of the problems in the art sector. It's interesting how you involve emotion into business. It's not a, that much about emotion. It's Well, but again, you said like somebody you don't like. Liking somebody or not liking somebody has nothing to do with the business of the arts. Mm, 
Well, if you are taking an active position. Okay, I'm totally wrong. Me. As I've said that out loud, I'm suddenly <laughs> like, oh, fuck, that was so wrong. But anyways, <laughs> but my point being is, is like you're you're being too emotional about this topic. Like, so like, it's not Maybe. about liking or not liking somebody. There are lots of people who I think are arrogant fucking assholes. But if they were to come in and say like, hey, you're the next great artist and I'm going to make you famous, I would get down on my knees and <laughs> say, thank you. <laughs> but at the same time, as a sector, that doesn't seem like a very healthy model. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic with the get down on my knees part, but kind of, yeah, kind of. But I mean, but that, that the, the thing is, is you, what you're talking about is you're talking about breaking down the system of who has power and how that power is doled out. The thing for me is that this power is very undefined still. It's very fluctuating in the sector and it depends on how you want to perceive yourself as an artist, at least for me. At least during my personal research, it came up a lot of times. Just to be clear for the listener, primarily Maria is a researcher, so like this is her thing. So like researching this stuff is what she does. I have a degree in sociology, indeed. Oh crap! So what are you reading into me right now? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of neuroses do I have? No sociology. It's a okay. completely different so thing. How do I deal in society? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I get that this is a little bit too emotional, but I am not sure. Also, again, from the point of view of this art system, I am not sure if we can get over the, not necessarily the component of emotion, but the component of value and the component of ethics. Because if we're not doing it, who is doing it? And again, from my personal experience of communicating with artists, I see that it is a lot about ethics, a lot about trying to choose what is right for you, even if it goes against any human logic. Give me a specific scenario for that, because like, the thing that pops in my head is like, if an artist were... Uh, I'm going to go with like the opioid crisis in the United States. So like if the Sackler family who owns, what is it? The one that created hydrocodone um, or whatever, or the, what, what was the one? It wasn't that. It was some opiate. But anyways, but if Big Pharma were to sponsor your art event and then and somebody has a position that they don't like Big Pharma, is that what you're talking about? Basically, yeah. But Big Pharma has the money. And and also there is the side note you have to understand too. So like so let's say Big Pharma is going to sponsor your art event that you're putting together, but you have a problem with Big Pharma. Mm -hmm. If you don't take that money, there somebody isn't somebody else, else will. Of course, I think this also a little bit uh, gets to maybe an interesting root cause for some of these problems. Is that art, in my head, is a kind of public good. Uh, and that's not how, obviously, our economic model works. Uh, and therefore, all of these problems are, you know, surfacing. <laughs> You're assuming the economic model works. But anyways. 
<laughs> well, it works in a certain kind of way. <laughs> to, to the advantage of certain people. But anyways. Yes. Yeah. Um, None of those people are in this room. And I, and I think that's maybe also why I, I really believe that Art Academy should have a more kind of public role to also advocate for the arts in general, to uh, kind of keep alive a discourse about what the art is about, what it is for, to also keep the art community itself closer to like just general normal regular people that are not uh you know kind of siloed within these uh subcultures of artists and whatever i love how you're dancing around trying to say like <laughs> people who don't understand art yeah i mean i don't necessarily think of them as people that don't understand art i mean I think it's just that art is very dependent on the kind of uh, collective consensus of art being something worthy. And if artists are not doing the communication or the kind of uh, standing for their rights of why that is so, then uh, obviously that collective consensus will not really come about in a way that is sufficient enough for who decides if it's worthy um <laughs> them, them. Well. yeah but i think in this case them it's more like the electorate or you know like something uh like a very kind of general mass wait wait people. slow down you want to get politicians involved in this now i disagree highly on that no not necessarily politicians involved but i think the art sector, the culture sector, and the problems within it need to be supported by certain policies that kind of create a framework for artists to have resources and to have institutions that can connect them to each other and so on and so forth. Well, I'll give you what I'm, where I'm coming from. Okay, in the United States, we have this thing called the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA. The NEA gets its funding from Congress, which, you know, the U.S. government, federal money, or they get some of their funding, I should say, not all of it. But and so therefore, when Republicans come into power, the NEA budget goes down. When Democrats go into power, the NEA budget goes up. And so literally the politics of like who is in power as a, a basically president, Senate, Congress in the United States Depend, it gives the results of saying like, okay, for the next four years, we're not going to have a lot of funding because Republicans are in power. Or for the next four years, we're going to have lots of funding because the Democrats are in power. That's horrible. I think that there should be some delineation because like the reason why I say that is because there are lots of other parts of government uh, oversight that have nothing to do with who's in power. Yeah, They get funded just because they're supposed to be funded, period. Like these are just government institutions and they, they're funded whether liberals or, 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 de or Democrat or liberals or conservatives are in power. So I hate when politics and art and, and specifically funding of art uh, are intertwined. I believe they should be completely separated. So like if you want to have an arts institution, I want to see like that there's just like something written in saying that like this school is funded for this amount with this amount increase every year for cost of living or like, you know, whatever price increase that needs to happen. And that like the, uh, 
powers that be in politics have no say on increasing or decreasing that budget. Well, I think Arctic academies or schools in general, I mean, even in Estonia, there was very, uh, well, it's kind of an ongoing case right now where the, we have basically like six universities in the whole country. Uh, and the rectors of those six universities basically just told the education minister, like, no, we're going to close down if you don't sign off on, uh, I think it was like 10 million euro for the next, uh, I can't remember what the period was, if it was half a year or a year or something like this. Uh, and then a certain percentage from there that it is all the time increasing by because uh, the government is kind of demanding more from universities to have specialists in these kind of sectors or that kind of sectors. Um, and universities are all the time adding programs, uh, hiring teachers, and did they sign off to deal on this? with inflation. Well, they have a, basically a contract for a certain amount of years and now they are and when the next negotiating. Well, see, that's the thing is like basically what ends up happening is, is politicians will just kick the can down the road. They'll say like, yes, we will fund the arts for the next four years. And in four years, I will no longer be in office. So that's the next person. <laughs> but I problem. think it's a little bit of a misconception to just say that politicians have the power. I mean, also these institutions have power. And politicians they have, have the purse string. The what? The money. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. So they, mm. they have the power of the money. <laughs> but institutions also have leverage to kind of, yeah. Well, I, it depends I'm waiting to hear what context. that leverage is. What, what's the leverage the institutions have other than just like a threat of um, unionized like walkout or closing their doors? That's literally their only leverage. They have no leverage. I've been on universities, like budgets, yeah, I mean, I feel like that could also be a case that uh, Estonia is a fairly small country. So if you have, you know, six universities and directors of all of those six universities saying that, okay, we're basically about to close our doors, then yeah, that's going to cause some waves. If six universities do that in the United States, no one's going to care. <laughs> so, Not a bit. No, six universities, we'd be happy to get rid of six universities <laughs> in the United States. There are far too many there. <laughs> But I mean, it's hard. Like, I mean, like I worked at the United Arab Emirates and the school I was at was funded by the sheikh. Like, so it wasn't even funded by the government. It was funded by one sheikh. So like, if he didn't like your ideas, your idea didn't happen. That, that is just creepy to begin with. <laughs> it is a very unique uh, lifestyle to live in a kingdom like that. So, yeah. I'm not going to say anything bad because I feel like they're still following me after all these years. <laughs> and I don't want to be thrown in prison. <laughs> oh God. But yeah, it was, it was really scary. Like, I mean, I went, one night I was out at a bar with his, and I just met this Emirati guy and I'm like, Hey, yeah, what do you do? He's like, my, I'm a police officer. I'm like, Oh, I hate police officers by the way. But you know, obviously from my stories. So, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. What do you do at the police? Office? And he, he says, my job is to read every text message that has the word shake in it. And I'm like, wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I live in this country and you're reading my text message. If they have the word shake in it, he's like, yeah. Oh, 
I had no idea that they literally read every text message. I was like, thank God I do like video conferencing more than text messaging because they can't really like watch all of that. But of course they could watch all of that too. But so yeah, they, they literally watch over everything we do. A friend of mine, a, a coworker of mine, a professor, a teacher at the art university was actually thrown in prison and deported for a picture she posted on Facebook. Wow. What was the picture about? The picture was of a car that was parked in a handicapped spot, but it was not a person who was handicapped. And why is this offensive to anybody? In that country, you are not allowed to take pictures of people's private property and post it on social media without their consent. But that's basically not posting so anything what, from any open space. Of? So you can basically post pictures of your feet from your living room. Correct. Nice. Good world we yeah. live in. Well. It, Interesting times. It has it has its pros and cons. I'm not going to sit here and bad mouth it. I mean, because there are certain people that absolutely love living there. I mean, every choice you make of where you choose to, you know, bring this back to, to, to the conversation. So like, the choice of where you choose to be an artist, you always have, there are always pros and cons. There are, certain, there are certain things that you will be allowed to do and will be embraced. And there will be certain things that you will not be allowed to do. And you just have to ex either choose to accept that or choose to move. Um, like in the Middle East, I could not create any figurative artwork. <laughs> it's against Sharia law. So you just accept that if that's where you want to live. Or you move somewhere else. Or you move somewhere else. If you have, if you can, I should say, like maybe you don't have the freedom. Some people don't have the freedom to do that. I did, so I left. All right, this is running very long. So <laughs> let's end, sort of end this up. So, what are your sort of um, aspirational ideas? So, like, perfect world. You have all the money in the world, so there's no there's no limitations on that. What's the art school you want to create? Also, where would it be? Somewhere in the woods. <laughs> Somewhere in the woods, yeah. <laughs> On top of a mountain, maybe. <laughs> okay. So away from a city, which is, I mean, that's a choice. Well, and not necessarily. I mean, I think... that That's more of a th joke. It sounds fun, <laughs> but... I don't know what I, no, kind wait, of. I will attest to it being wanna... amazing. Black Mountain College in North Carolina in the United States amazing thing created jasper johns robert rauschenberg all these kinds of people black mountain college out in the middle of the woods it was basically like summer camp for artists ended up making some of the most influential artists of the generation so i mean i do think like a smaller town yeah i'm imagining places in estonia that nobody is gonna know about <laughs> uh i think most places in estonia most people don't know about yeah <laughs> It, 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 this is a bit of a out-of-the-way country, admittedly. Like, it is. This is not a hub of much industry in the world. In the region, yes, but maybe not in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's a tiny country, so... Fair enough. All right. So anyways, pie in the sky, out in the woods. By a lake, I would go by a waterfall myself, but... By a lake is enough. Okay. <laughs> Are we still talking about where? <laughs> or? That was just a, a sort of an idea. Like, because there's a, there's a big difference between saying like, 
I want to, you know, be in the hub of the arts industry and, and, and create an art school there versus you want to create an art school that's sort of away from the hustle and bustle. That's a huge difference. So you think that that away from the hustle and bustle of a, like a big city or a cultural mecca is somehow beneficial for an art school? I mean, in some sense, uh, like one of our participants within the Destructura project, uh, she's uh, calling herself a uh, paranoid practitioner. Uh, and she talks about this dynamic within the art sector that uh, artists have become so paranoid paranoid of being accepted within the, commu the art community itself that they are actually scared to produce uh and because the it's critics, a very paranoid position to be taking yes it is true but a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there but i do kind of also like observe this in art academies to a degree i mean i don't know it, it varies a lot I'm not paranoid. Anybody listening that wants to accept me into their arts world, I will gladly do it. I am not paranoid about that at all. Nice. A little scared. I mean, to be to a certain extent, I understand. Okay, it is a little bit of a double-edged sword because once you get accepted, then sometimes you get pigeonholed, and then like then you're also you become a bit more of a lightning rod for criticism as well. Like the higher you get in the industry, so I mean, there is a bit of a mixed bag on that. So I get that. Anyways, I mean, I think generally I would like to see something that is an education that is engaged both within the school, like uh, in, engaged uh, through specific kind of values and through specific kind of knowledge that is broader than just like one craft be it fine arts or design or you know i think that really understanding the the sector and uh, not only the sector only from a kind of business side of it but more also just how arts and culture is part of broader society and the kind of role and responsibility that artists have uh within this narrative joseph boys also part of <laughs> black mountain college come on you got to know that name of course okay great I highly recommend if you are actually thinking of going down this path, look into Black Mountain College. It's a great model that many schools have tried to, to emulate, but haven't been able to do it very well. From my side, I'd say I'd add to it a little bit. For me, an educational institution, education in general, well, also given my background, uh, having a degree in sociology and uh, in uh, art management soon, um, Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they do not seem to be super practical, but I'd say um, I like those a lot. And they brought me to believe that an education is a kind of a pathway for you to understand a little bit how the world works. Not only how the world works, but... <laughs> To have this mental capability of being like, okay, this can be like this, but it can also be a completely different way. And there are this forces and this forces that are making it as it is. Not only about knowing, okay, I'm going to become a lawyer, so I need to know this, this and this by heart, and I need to do this in this situation. But kind of understanding that the world is a complex machine. 
Um, so I am not sure that I'm very down for this technical approach, which of course there should be some technical things that are taught. But if I were to create an academy, I would take it as a priority to know that the students coming out of it know how to think, how to communicate, how to critically understand what they're seeing in front of their eyes. And at the same time, I think it somehow flows nicely into this openness of an institution and an institution accepting everybody in as sort of their student in the sense that Frederick mentioned before, um, students being not only students that are enrolled, but the, again, general public, all the people are outside of the art sector, not professionally involved in the art sector. Also, when I refer to the general public, it's not that kind of, kind of patronizing way of like... Yeah. I mean, we involve people that want to be involved, you know? Like, it's it, it should not be that something is being... Okay, like so you're, you're not like shoving it in their face. Really don't care, <laughs> right. You know, like, I mean, I think many different kind of communities can exist and they don't all have to be, I don't think they all can be or should be linked to each other. Like that would also kind of be boring. Well, in uh, my research, I usually say people without training in the arts. That is a very polite way to say that. Well, as a, re as a researcher, I should be. <laughs> I am neither a researcher, nor do I need to have such tact. So I say uneducated. <laughs> I mean, we've also talked a lot about like the, maybe it comes a bit back to the point you made earlier of uh, artists being seen in a true specific type of stereotypes of, you know, like this starving artist or like the autonomous artist or like this, you know, guy with a uh, smoking cigarette and wearing a beret in an attic or something like. I so want a beret. Yeah. I have like a lab coat that I wear when I'm in the studio. So like, I, I do. I want that. I'm personally like, see, I'm a romantic. I love like 1920s Paris, kind of like sitting around the cafe, smoking cigarettes, yeah, and and I mean, I think building a revolution. That's why Ooh. these stereotypes are so, uh, you know, seductive. But they it's are. also a little bit like, you know, it's time to get real a little bit. Like art is a profession and it should be taught as something that is a profession and not something that is a lifestyle that is you know like a cute hobby thing <laughs> for you to do on the side and then still have like your real job that you uh sustain yourself with like i think the contribution that artists make to society is unknown to themselves and probably not recognized by general masses uh, and it won't be often generally recognized until after their death, long after their death, sadly. Yeah, yeah. All right, I have a personal question. Not personal of you all, but a personal from me. I've had this debate with, with people in the arts and academic field for many years. Haven't really come up with a great answer to it. So I want to hear your insight because... I'm talking to people my generation and older about this. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. Some professors take the position that their job is to harden and toughen up students 
so in other words, harsh critiques, uh, you know, teach them like the, this is the way the real world is. You have to be, uh, you have to put on a facade, you have to build a, a shield kind of thing to be able to take the criticism, take the rejection, blah, 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 blah. That's one sort of methodology of teaching. Then there's the other methodology of teaching, which I've also interacted with, where people coddle and, and oh, oh, you're doing great. Oh, you, oh, oh, this is so good, even though it's absolute crap. <laughs> they're, they're like just sitting there saying like the nicest things, always complimenting them and coddling them. And in some respects, that's not preparing them for. I mean, I feel like Some one things. is destructive and the other is irresponsible. Like, well, these and, kind of well, two extremes, you know? They are two extremes. And I guess the question is, like, there there isn't really a middle ground on that. I mean... I don't know if I'm I would sure. agree with that. Okay. I've had... I mean, I think that maybe goes back to what we started with, is that teacher... Like, teaching should be a practice and you need specific kind of skills to find this middle ground. I mean, I, I've had very good teachers that are critical, but in a way that is supportive. Not only supportive, but in a way that I, as a student, can understand a clear function of whatever critique that they were making. And it's not constructive. Like constructive, yes, but in a kind of. Yeah, just let's just stick with the word constructive. I think that's fairly understandable. Okay. Anything about that idea? Well, coming from my super short teaching experience, um, I am teaching social sciences on the side sometimes. I've been teaching them for a little while at the High School of Economics Univer um, Lyceum in Moscow. Not like I have a huge background to give a concrete opinion, but I feel like it works well when you're saying to students, I am going to be harsh on you because I need you to learn, but I am also there to support you. And I don't feel like this is so difficult to communicate. Yes, of course, but like, you are not supposed to be any of those two extremes. For I me think also like different possible. students learn in different ways and all of those students learn in different ways at different times. So I think as a teacher, you also need to kind of recognize like, when are you supportive? When are you like giving more criticism? And also like what has sometimes helped me in my studies was when I just had a teacher go like, no, I'm not going to even talk to you for a week. <laughs> like, this is a moment where you're going to figure it out on your own. And yes, like in that very moment, it's kind of like, fuck's sakes, really? Like, I'm so existentially stuck with this project. Uh, but then, yeah, you do figure it out on your own. And then you're like, ah, okay, I get. Well, there's, I mean, there's also the thing, like, I'm thinking of a very particular coworker of mine. And so like, I don't want to say her name, but the, like some, some teachers will like literally like sit there and handhold and what I call like almost like spoon feed the answers to the students. And then other teachers will, they'll, they'll have a bit of a, what looks like a laissez-faire attitude, sort of very standoffish attitude with the, with the intention of pushing the students to figure things out for themselves. I will admit I'm of the harder uh, professor 
I, I'm not the coddling professor by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and I am the one who will actually push them to figure out for themselves because I'm of the teach a man to fish versus give a man a fish kind of a, a philosophy. So I'm all about trying to prepare them as best they can for their future need to, um, you know, work with adversity basically like, because that's a lot of what the, the arts industry is, is, is something's gone wrong and you sit there and you go, okay, great. That, that went wrong. How do I figure it out and make that into a positive somehow? How do I turn that into something that I can work with? Because um, almost every career path I've seen never goes the straight path that we all think or hope it would. There's always roadblocks. There's always barriers. There's always uh, people saying no. You know, you don't get the whatever the funding, the opportunity, the whatever. And but but you need to find, be able to figure out how to turn those things into something useful or positive. And so I'm of the more stricter teachers generally um, to try and push the students because quite honestly, if a student, I feel if students can't be those problem solvers, then they're probably not going to do very well in the arts industry. Agreed, but unless they still feel like they can come to to an institution not maybe to you personally, but to an institution, and they can be supported in there. Just to be clear, I'm very supportive, <laughs> but just not in a coddling kind of way. Well, you, you're not supposed to coddle your students. They're not your kids or pets. I know, but <laughs> some teachers do that. I think like when, it, when I find it, like when I have a bit of trouble with this is when it becomes... I mean, I think I hear a lot of students also say that they get feedback from their teachers, like about, uh, for example, deadlines or workload or like just art education can often be very intense and teachers use like, oh, but the sector is like this. So you also need to manage it here. And that I find sometimes a little bit unnecessary because why would you break down the students so intensely before they even have the chance to enter the sector and also don't you have a responsibility towards the sector to just i don't know not instill that mindset within like young starting practitioners that the sector is like this therefore it cannot be changed therefore we educate you in this kind of way to make you fit the sector instead of educating students through a different kind of agency or a different kind of value system that would actually want to make them improve some of the conditions within the art scene. But this assuming that we take some kind of a value system and we accept this value system as the value system of the sector. Yeah, and it's also something that is, of course, within education. I think when you start talking about values, it becomes a very controversial kind (laughs) of thing. I personally feel that education is nothing without values, but there is never any agreement on which kind of values (laughs) should be. (laughs) Okay, based on what you just said, though, I'll give you a little bit of background like on why I am the way I am. In my graduate program, two-year program, the okay i didn't understand this while i was in the program but literally like at graduation the sort of head of the department literally spelled out to me what they did the first year of the schooling 
no matter what you turned in, it was wrong. Mm-hmm. It was bad. It was not very good. Whatever. The entire first year was them crushing our spirits, telling us we're horrible, telling us we're not making good work, we're not good artists, the whole thing for an entire year. If we could continue to make work and then potentially continue to make good work, then in the second year, they rebuilt us into stronger, more confident artists. That was their intention and they planned the entire curriculum in that way. I think that's a fairly common methodology in art academies. They actually called it the Phoenix method, which is basically kill you and then rebuild you. I, in hindsight, <laughs> now at the time I fucking was so angry with them when they told me that they intentionally had put me through hell for a year. But in hindsight, it was pretty good because the, the people who could go, th- could suck it up and take it and go through all that it really kind of is the the reality of the art world in many ways. I mean, not, not literally, but in many ways, because if you can't suck up 95 rejections in order to get one acceptance, then this is not the field for you. But it also doesn't, like it will always stay that field if there are only people within it that have this high of a tolerance for sucking it up. Well, but that's because that's the way the industry is. Like the industry, like I don't know anybody in the industry that says, you know what? I have been accepted to every opportunity and I've received every grant and every funding opportunity. It has been a marvelous life. Well, I don't think any industry works like this. <laughs> I know lots of people who've been very successful in their jobs and gotten through and they've yeah, gotten okay, the promotions and they've gotten the jobs that they've always wanted and they do all that. There are lots of careers like that. Yeah, okay, and this kind of very, like, from job to job. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But not in the arts. I guess not in any... Creativity. Kind of self-sufficient, like, where you're not employed, basically. <laughs> you just said artists are not employed, but okay. <laughs> self-employed. Uh... Not full-time employed. But, yeah, it's it's really hard to... to be able to emotionally be in the arts industry because it's it's a your entire life is a hope and a prayer yeah it is sad as much as it is romantic though no don't you think so (laughs) i do but you just define my entire life as sad and romantic well, I'm not that, sure whether to take that as a compliment or not (laughs) that image of uh, (laughs) sitting in paris with a cigar Cigarette. Cigarette. I don't do cigars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. gave me that white. Oh, I would probably be drinking absinthe as well just to, be <laughs> cl- to paint the whole picture. But yeah, I mean, it, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's really hard. So wrapping this up. So uh, this art school, are you actually going to do this or is this just theorizing? Well, we are 23, 24 years old. <laughs> so maybe in like 20 years. Why wait? Well, we are kind of doing um, a demo of it here, maybe. Well, we're trying out different... certain kind of way. In a certain kind of way. We're, let, let's call it a tryout for now. We're figuring out what it should be, how it should be. Let's see where it goes. 
All right. Well, the best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.